Thank you guys for having me. Oh, just give me a second here. Yeah, how many of you guys like the rain? You like it when it rains? Yeah, you appreciate beautiful things too, see? Yeah, I know one of my like favorite things is just how the air is after it rains. I don't know if you guys, if you like to run, like that, one of my favorite things was like, and still is kind of like going to run outside after it rains because everything's just kind of cleared up. There's not like all this stuff in the air. It's just kind of feels really good. So maybe some of you wish you were running right now and not here. But I, like when I came in here to worship with you guys tonight, I, I kind of felt that. We're just singing, praising God, and rehearsing the gospel together as we were worshiping. Because the gospel kind of has that effect, right? It just like cleans everything up in my mind. It's like, okay, now I'm just thinking about how I've been loved by God. And that reminds me of what matters in life. It reminds me of uh, who I am, of who God is, of what this evening's about. It just is like this rain. <laughs> kind of clears everything up. So Layton and Allie and I didn't see who was on keys. Was that Sarah? Thank you guys. Or who? Or Annie? Sorry. Elise, Elise, thank you. Sorry. Great job. I know just, it, for me, it just kind of clarified things. And that's what we're going to try to do tonight. Just get the gospel to clarify and clean up some of the haze and the messiness that can come as we think through sexuality. And as Pastor Dave uh, mentioned, it's the beginning of a two-part study on the gospel and sexuality. We'll start by looking specifically tonight at lust, though, and how it kind of captures our hearts and how lust kind of can erase the humble love of Christ from our relationships. It kind of changes what we hope for and desire with people. So I want to begin our study tonight by just sharing a little bit of my own journey that God has taken me on in learning how to kill this sin, fight it. This topic is very dear to me because in my life, especially junior high through college, lust felt like this hopeless prison. I mean, I have experienced some great tragedies in my life, and I'll tell you about those in another day, but no outside trial has caused me more discouragement and depression than the constant inward trial of losing the battle with lust. And I think this is because no outside trial can harm my relationship with God. Like only my sin can do that. Like the betrayal of a friend, the death of a family member, the, the abuse of an enemy, the battle with a disease, all of those things are tragic. And maybe you've felt some of those things and you've gone through those pains. But no outside trial can depress me more than my own sin because nothing on the outside of me has the power to touch my closeness to God. Like only my sin can mess with that. And this is why I love knowing how to fight sin, because I don't want anything to keep me from God, to keep me from my heavenly father. Right? He's the one who brings the clarity, right? His love is like this compass that reorients me and tells me who I am, tells me what's true. He's the one who supports me in every trial. He's working to make something good out of all those outside trials, the betrayals, the friends who might gossip about me, the diseases, the losses I go through. And the only thing in this world that can put any distance between me and him is my sin. That's it. This is also why I, I love what I get to do for a living as a counseling pastor. I absolutely love walking with people down the paths of sin and suffering to help them experience God's truth, just invading their darkness and giving them hope and freedom in him. 
Now, hopefully what I'm saying right now resonates with you. But for some of you, you might not have any idea what I'm talking about because you, st you're, you, stink, you still think that the, the worst disappointments in life are on the outside. Because you think the greatest joys in life are on the outside. You, you might think the greatest joys are still like yet to happen in your life because they're on the outside, right? It's like getting that acceptance letter, going to that college, getting that career, having that relationship. But if your greatest joy is on, your out, is on the outside, it is something has taken the place of God. We're missing the gospel. But if your greatest joy is in your relationship with God, then sin is gonna be your greatest dis disappointment. For most of my life, I had a hard time seeing sin, fighting sin, helping others fight because my understanding of sin was so shallow. So I knew sin was messing with my mind. It was messing with my relationship with God, but I didn't know how to fight it. And honestly, that's one of the things that got me so passionately into gospel-centered counseling is because I wanted to get closer to my God and I wanted to just see churches become armies of people committed to fighting things that get in the way of enjoying God. I remember one summer when I was in college, I was a cabin leader at a Christian camp and I was having a one-on-one -on -one session with a 12-year-old student and he confessed to me his struggle with lust and pornography. He's 12 years old. And this young man was desperate. He'd been living with this kind of prison of, of lust and pornography for over a year, he told me. And he just looked up at me with like hopeless tears running down his face. And he said, Tim, does it ever get any better? And I'm in college. I'm thinking in my mind, he's probably struggling less than I am. My heart was just swimming with idols. My thought life was constantly crippled by lust. I felt like the last guy on earth who ought to be talking to this guy about lust. Think for just a moment about how you would answer his question. Does it ever get any better? He's a 12-year-old. This could happen to you guys on a, on a youth retreat, right? You're a high school student. A 12-year-old could ask you a question like this in a moment of confidence with you. What would you say to him or her? Would you take him to the hope of heaven? Yes, it will. When, like someday we will sin no more. Would you tell him to count the cost of following Christ and just kind of just cut out every form of sexual temptation? Would you talk to him about accountability in the local church and it's important to meet with a brother and not to do this alone? All of those things are good, but it could just leaving him, it could just leave him kind of wishing he was dead because then he'd be in heaven. Or it could leave him putting all of his hope in people and fences that would block him from the things he truly wanted, the things his heart longed for. So what would you say? Well, let's look at our passage for tonight. We're going to be looking at Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 through 30. Matthew 5, verses 27 through 30. This is Christ speaking. He said, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, Tear it out and throw it away, for it's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away, for it's better that you lose one of your members than your whole body go into hell. If what Jesus is saying is true, that all of this 
adultery, this sexual sin comes from our hearts, then how would you address that 12-year-old boy's heart? What tools do you guys and ladies have right now to address your own heart? Lust is, is not primarily a, a, a nurture problem. It doesn't mainly happen because of your environment that you grew up in. It doesn't keep happening in your life mainly because of an addictive chemical dependency that happens in your brain. As Jesus says in verse 28, it comes from our heart. So more than anything else, that is what we need to understand to know how to fight and to help others fight lust and sexual sin. We have to fight it at our hearts. So in order to help us do that, we're going to see three steps for understanding and fighting lust in our hearts from our passage tonight. That's what you're going to be looking at tonight. The first is, the first step to understand and to fight lust in our hearts is to recognize worship, to recognize worship. Verse 28, Christ says, um, he refers to looking with lustful intent, right? Anyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent. And that for the word intent, for clarity, you might want to substitute the word desire. A worshiper looks at God, the world, and people with intentions. Whether good or bad, every worshiper, that's every person, every one of us, like we are all made for worship, right? Ephesians 1 says that he made us, that we might be to the praise of his glorious grace, right? We exist to make much of God. So every worshiper, that's all of us, we look at this world with intentions, desires, and we interpret the gifts that God gives us with those desires, with those intentions. So in this passage, in Matthew 5, Jesus just finished drawing a direct line from anger to murder. And he says, those are the same in God's eyes because of the intention of the heart. The intention of the heart is the same. So whether we're putting a knife to someone's throat or giving them a cold shoulder, underneath both actions, our hearts are the same before God. We're wanting the same things, like revenge, justice, control, and we're not trusting God for those things. Well, in our verses this evening, Jesus is drawing another direct line from lust to adultery and says they're the same in God's eyes because the intention of the heart is the same. The desire of the heart is the same. That's how Jesus starts in verse 27 and 28. Now, God cares primarily about the heart because it is our hearts, the part of us that says, I want, I need, I desire. That's like our inner desire factory. That's what controls our worship. So Jesus defines adultery at the level of worship. He calls it lustful intent. And what Jesus is saying is that the desires and intentions of our heart will either connect God's good gifts to his goodness and will worship him for giving us these gifts or will disconnect the gift from him and then we get to be the creator. We get to give purpose to this gift. And now I am the creator. I am the one who determines purpose and meaning for the gifts in my life. That's the difference between lusting after a person and honoring them in our heart. One sees them as a gift that exists only for me and I can do whatever I want with them in my mind or in real life. And I, or seeing them as a gift that deepens my worship of God, the good giver of every good gift. So we can define lust then based on this passage as allowing a sexual desire or 
allowing a sexual desire rather than selfless love to control how you see someone, think about them, and relate to them. Let me say that again. It should be in your notes. Allowing a sexual desire rather than selfless love to control how you see someone, think about them, or relate to them. Selfless love that imitates Christ would see another person as a sufferer, sinner, saint. I would see someone and say, well, that's someone who lives in a broken world and they're touched by the brokenness of this world. They're a sufferer. They're a sinner. They have brokenness inside themselves. They struggle with different, in, in different ways to, to know and to honor God. And they're also a saint. If they're a Christian, right, they are bearing good, they're bearing fruit of the Spirit. So I can see them those ways. Lust erases all that and says, now this person only exists to serve me. Lustful desire knows, no longer sees them and honors them as a whole person. It takes one feature of them, maybe their physical appearance, maybe a fantasy relationship with someone, and sees them selfishly through that lens, rehearses a relationship with them through that lens. Now, I want you to look carefully at this next slide. If you can see it. <laughs> it's also in your, in your handout if you can't see it. Just to see the difference between Christ-like love to someone that honors them and selfish lust that makes them exist in your mind to serve your desires. The beginning of love is respect. The beginning of love is honor. Counting someone as more significant than yourself. Seeking their highest good. Right? Before I can lovingly serve you and honor you, I have to know something about you to seek your highest good. And the beginning of lust, rather, then is, is manipulation. Counting someone as less than, rather than counting them as more than. They exist as a vehicle for me to get what I want. So I kind of put these side by side. Honor says, you belong to God more than me. And lust says, you are my possession. I can do anything I want with you in my mind. Honor says, your genuine needs are more important than what I want. Lust says, you must serve my desires and preferences. Honor says, I want to learn from you. Lust says, do whatever I want. Honor says, I want to understand you. Lust says, you need to understand and serve my desires. Honor says, let's move slowly. Lust says, give me what I want now. Honor says, what do those who love us think about our relationship? And lust says, I only care about giving in to what I feel. So I want you to think, just brainstorm for a second, how many relationships are characterized by honor in your life? Just don't answer out loud, just think about it. Who loves you this way? Selflessly, honoring you. The person this does, this, uh, describes more than anyone is our, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, who has loved us, who gave himself up for us, who sought our highest good, even at great cost, greatest cost to himself. That is what lust seeks to erase from us, from our relationships, from our minds, our ability to love like Christ. So now think, how, how have you looked with lustful intent? Maybe you imagined a romantic relationship with someone that revolves around you getting everything you want from them rather than serving them. If so, you've committed adultery in God's eyes. 
So let's think back to that camper, that, help, that junior hire, that 12-year-old, and his question, does it ever get any better? The first step in helping him fight lust is to help him understand that he is a worshiper, and therefore he is going to look at everyone with intentions and desires, and those intentions and desires reveal what he worships. So we start with that big picture, that we look around our lives as worshipers. It's actually a wonderful thing that we, are, that we get to look at all of God's gifts as worshipers. Right? It's a gift that's meant to draw us closer to God, to write poems. Right? Um, there's this, this book, um, Every Moment Holy. There's two volumes. And in it, one of the prayers is um, worshiping God when I see an attractive person. <laughs> like there's a, a meditation on that. We're meant to look at the world and all of God's gifts and rejoice and proclaim his glory. Everything God made declares his glory, according to Psalm 19. Like the heavens declare it, creation declares it. But the problem is that we believe lies about what we're looking at, that the thing I'm looking at exists to serve me, to make me happy, to, to stop with me, not to ignite my worship for God. The problem is that we believe the lies about what we're going at, looking at, and that's the next place you would go with this man. Repentance, then, starts with understanding the lies that hijack our worships, that, that turn our hearts away from the giver of every good gift. And Jesus addresses this, phrase, addresses this with the phrase, for it is better. For it is better. He talks about this, in, you see this in verses 29 and 30. So the next point here is to repent, which means to turn from lies that hijack your worship. So why would Jesus say that it's better to be injured in this life than to spend eternity in hell? And he doesn't just say it once, he says it twice. And he doesn't say it just twice here, he does it again in Matthew 18. Uh, many years ago, our church staff had a conversation about how much money someone would have to pay us to lose a limb. So I'm going to just do that uh, quick survey here and just see... Uh, how many of you guys know the value of a dollar? Who would give their right hand? You would lose a right hand for $100,000. Anyone? How many would lose a right hand for a million dollars? For a million dollars. All right. Ellie knows the value of a dollar. <laughs> yeah, good, good, good. All right, there's some people. I don't know if I should be saying good, good, good. <laughs> I'm not offering a million dollars for your right hand. How about $100 million? $100 million just to give up your right hand. All right, okay, some people, some people are committed. No, what about a billion dollars? Give you a billion dollars. Any new, new takers? Okay, well, what if, yeah, okay. What if giving up your right hand was the only way to go to heaven? All other avenues, you go to hell, right? Good. Everybody will do that, right? There is, right, who would disagree with that statement, right? Who would honestly say hell is better than losing a hand? Like, what is Jesus trying to clarify here? Well, he's pushing against something. He's pushing against the false idea that this temporary life matters more than eternity, that this world has something that God doesn't. The lie he's exposing is, is how sin wants to compare this world with God and say that this world is better, right? We were just singing that again and again. Jesus is better. Make my heart believe. 
Why are we saying that? Because we are pushing back on the same thing Jesus was pushing back on. That it's a lie that this life, that this world, that these pleasures are better when they are disconnected from God. He says, for it is better because he's pushing against a false notion that goes straight to the core of our worship of God. It addresses the lie of lust that says the person you're looking at, that you're imagining a relationship with, that you're obsessed over, it has, has something for you that God doesn't. So what happens to my worship when I start believing that lie? The world becomes more real than eternity. A girl or a guy, someone made by God becomes more real and becomes bigger than God himself. So when Jesus says, for it is better that you lose one of your members and your whole body be thrown into hell, he's not trying to scare you. He's not using a scare tactic or trying to make his followers physically harm themselves. He's pleading with you not to put temporary pain and pleasure over eternal pain and pleasure, not to weigh God on the scale with his gifts. He's saying you cannot weigh eternity with a moment in front of your phone and a laptop. Jesus is being as obvious as he can because the deception of lust is so subtle. Right? The deception is like almost hip, this hypnotic apathy, like it doesn't really matter. It is of no consequence what I click on or what I look at or what I think about. And Jesus is saying, when you do that, you're putting God on a scale. You're exalting the gift over the giver and saying that is better. In the gospel, God has given us pleasures that are real and satisfying and never-ending, and those pleasures are yours right now in Christ. He is giving you a vital truth that will save you from lust. So you can look at that that 12-year-old camper and say, the lie that hijacks your worship, this is it. It doesn't mainly go after your behavior. It goes after your faith. It doesn't come after you. The lie of lust doesn't come after you saying, do this bad thing. Click on this bad image. Keep scrolling. It, doesn't, it comes to you and says, just believe this is better. Just for a little bit while, believe this is better. Just for 10 minutes. Just for two hours, believe this is better. Just for tonight, believe this is better. Believe joy, comfort, acceptance, freedom. Belief, believe life is better here. See, the power of this temptation is not in what it tells you to do, but in what it convinces you to believe about God. In some way, every sin comes from this, right? From believing that God could not or would not provide for our needs. And so to save ourselves, we put our faith in the lies that our idols tell us. And that's exactly what happened to Eve in the garden, right? In Genesis 3. What Eve did is she stopped seeing God as a good provider, a good giver. The temptation in the garden wasn't, hey, Eve, bite the fruit, bite the fruit. Just like your temptation is not click here or keep scrolling. The temptation for Eve was God is not enough. God, he doesn't really provide for this. He can't actually give you that. So think for a second, what do you believe that God will not give you? That is where you will find all of your idols. That's where they all live. They live there in the place where I feel like God's care stops That's where my idolatry begins. 
you cling to the idol of a relationship because just that person promises you acceptance, maybe an escape from a terrible, struggling life. Maybe under, that person promises you understanding and you don't feel like anyone else, including God, can give you understanding. Every idol promises that it alone can meet our deepest needs in this life. And that's what causes us to surrender our faith to them. The strength of the lie is that it says your idol is a better provider than your heavenly father. So if we really zero in on the lie behind lust, it's that God cannot fulfill my sexual desires. The one who created sexual desire cannot fulfill it. So I need to worship someone or something else to meet that need. But let's think about that. Like, what is sexual desire? And don't, don't answer out loud, just think about it. What are you longing for when you're longing for something sexually? You're longing for spiritual blessings. You're longing for things like comfort, pleasure, companionship, freedom, respect, love, honor, protection, encouragement. All of those fantasies are spiritual realities. And they are all given to you freely in Christ at great cost to him. According to Ephesians 1.3, we have every spiritual blessing in heavenly places in Christ. So when you lust, it feels like you're reaching out for something so physical and tangible, so, something so different than God, but it's actually spiritual because you're a worshiper. You're actually reaching out for a relationship with God. And as a worshiper, the force behind everything you crave is spiritual because you are made for a relationship with God. So once you understand that all sin has its roots in this lie, it'll deepen the path of repentance that you're walking on. Right, and I want to deepen that a little bit more right now. So to deepen the path, I want you to see this repentance in three parts. Conviction, confession, and change. All right, conviction is where we're going to start here. Conviction is really the, that sorrow you feel after sin. Like, where does the sorrow of sin take us? <clears throat> if I go back to that 12-year-old young man that I was kind of, who was in my cabin, he obviously is feeling bad, right? There's tears running down his face. So I could say to him, um, you're obviously broken over your sin. Um, now let's just stop it and move on, right? But I, I want to actually... Um, I want to actually ask him about his grief. Like, where is that grief taking him? So you would want to ask him, what is it about this sin that grieves you so much? He might say, well, I just see how much my sin has affected my energy and my time, how much time I've wasted. It's harmed my ability to love people. I lose joy in life. And I just want my life back. And I might say, all right, man, let's go. Let's fight this sin together. But has he really understood Sorrow over sin, like why God has given him sorrow over sin. Guilt exists primarily to tell me there's something off in my relationship with God. And the fact is, we often minimize or forget that our sin is against God. We, we kind of live in the dramatic effects of our sin, right? Maybe someone found out about it, or we just beat ourselves up about it. We don't understand we live inside all the pain and consequences and they're the greatest grief of our sin. But scripture calls that worldly sorrow. It doesn't lead to real repentance. 
Heath Lambert, in his book, Finally Free, describes our kind of post-lust mental punishments. Like the, He calls it condemning self-talk. This is what he says. We typically respond to moral failures with mental punishments. I don't know if you guys see that. I, I definitely do that. I'm terrible. I'm awful. Right? What if someone finds out I'm such a hypocrite? Maybe I'm just not a Christian. Okay, he says, mental punishments are not helpful because they deal with sin in a self-centered way rather than a Christ-centered way. It has you standing center stage as you reflect on what you think about what you have done and as you describe what you think you deserve because of all that you did, right? So it's all about you. The problem is there's too much of you in all of this and you need to move the focus to Christ. Worldly sorrow from sin makes us blind to the agony of the cross. And we miss how guilt is designed to actually bring us back to God by causing us to weep over Christ's pain more than our own. Like, you guys know my wife, G. Right? If I um, like said something really unkind to her, right? and now she's like washing dishes and she's at the sink, um, like, I feel bad, right? Now, I want to I wanna do something about that. So I could go into my room and beat myself up, right? Like, oh, why did I do that? That was so bad. That was so terrible. I'm such a terrible husband. Why did I say that thing? Why did I do that again? That doesn't help our relationship at all. That doesn't glorify God at all, right? When I'm feeling that sorrow over sin, right, it's telling me that there's, there's a distance there. And I actually... That's what I hate, is the distance. Like, I want, I want her back. I don't like this ice hanging in the air, right? I, I want to be near to her. That, that's what guilt over sin is meant to do. Like, I want God back. I want to be close to him again. I want to enjoy him. I want that clarity of the gospel to settle on my life like rain again so I can remember who I am and what life is about. That is godly sorrow. The experience of guilt or remorse is really the first sign that the Spirit is at work in a believer's life. But we need to ask ourselves, what is causing this sorrow? Am I obsessed with how bad I am or am I longing to be closer to God and am I sad that I took steps away from Him? According to 2 Corinthians 7.10, godly sorrow over sin leads you back to God because you see Christ as, as the victim of your sin. You, you think about the ways you've replaced him and believed in a lie over his truth. So that's where I want to start if I'm helping this young camper, right? Why are you sad? Is it a longing to be close to God? Or are you just beating yourself up? Understanding the lies and broken faith that leads to sin and how the sorrow after sin is from God and is meant to bring us back to God that helps us take the next step, which is confession, right? Can I humbly say to God what he says about my sin? Um, how many of you have played like organized sports, like where you were on a team? Okay, good. Some of you have. If you played sports and lost a big game, like what did a coach typically say in the locker room after the game was over? They ever say like, let's not talk about it. Let's pretend like it didn't happen. In fact, like in my book, I'm going to say that we won. Right? No, it's, he doesn't pretend like it doesn't happen. You talk about what happened. You think about where did things go wrong? How can we learn from our mistakes? 
Hopefully he's not like kicking, flipping over, you know, chairs or throwing things at you. But there's an honest conversation about what went wrong. Well, confession is kind of like that locker room conversation with God after losing the big game. It takes reflection, honesty. It takes looking at scripture and focusing on Christ in the midst of great disappointment. Right? But when it's done right, it not only brings you back to God, I think it takes you a step further in battling sin because you're looking beyond the tears and the pain to a better understanding of the ugliness of sin, the deceitfulness of your heart, and right there is the mercy and the kindness and the grace of Christ. His beauty, his love, the things that drew you to him in the first place are there so you remember why his love is better and why he is better. Confession, the word in uh, the Greek comes from homologeo. It's the Greek word to say the same thing as God, to say the same thing. So in confession, I'm trying to say what God says about my sin and idolatry. And he doesn't just say, you're so bad. I think that's not what he's saying. There's certain lies we've believed. There's certain things we have replaced God with that has led me to turn away from him. So I can say more than God, please forgive me. I don't know where that lustful, came, lustful thought came from. You can actually talk with God about your worship, how you traded the God that you worship for something else in this world. You can talk about the lies. You can be guided with scriptures that help you describe sin and all of its ugliness and, and foolishness. Like this one, Matthew 5, where you can say, God, I've, once again, I've committed adultery in my heart. I've turned to the things of this world thinking that they were better. When we do that, we're getting closer to the meaning of confession, like what God says about our sin. Deepening confession with God not only brings you back to God, but it allows you to see your sin more clearly to know how to, to turn from it, to see it coming toward you in temptation more quickly. You can see kind of the yellow flags and the red flags of temptation more easily because you understand what's going on in your heart more fully. I think most of all, when you're talking to God and spending time with him, you just see him more. The whole point of confession isn't to have you staring at your sin for a really long time. The point of confession is to have you staring at God for a really long time. And in the light of his glorious grace, sin is exposed. But what's also exposed is his love for you. So you can remember, once again, why he is better. So we turn from lies that hijack our worship by understanding that um, uh, our conviction is our sorrow centered on God, our confession, am I saying the stuff about my sin that God says? And the final step of repentance is, is change, it's growth, right? Now there's this word in Christian like culture that's really popular and it's purity. I don't know if you guys have heard that word. I grew up with it. I went to purity conferences. There's people at my Christian college that were in like purity clubs, people took purity oaths. Purity, it's in, when I was growing up, was all about like just avoiding things. It was like being a pure person meant like you just didn't do bad things. That is not what purity is in scripture. Purity is not an avoidance ethic where you just avoid, avoid, avoid. Purity is about loving others like Christ. So to do that, we have to create kind of this diet of fueling our faith and meditating on God's love. I am not going to learn to love like Christ without getting to know him and spending time enjoying his love. 
So purity is really found when our hearts are so full of God's love that we look at someone and our only desire for them is that they might know the love of God. I mean, think about that. Like, think about, is there a relationship in your life like that where like when the main thing for you when you look at that person is I want them to know the love of Christ. If that's not there in your relationships, then it's likely you're not spending enough time enjoying the love of Christ. Because the more we spend time enjoying the love of Christ, the more that is what will fill our hearts. This is why I think all of us need a daily experience of the love of God, right? We need to spend time in the morning just like eating up his love in his word, looking at creation, looking at the people who love us, and let all of that just fill our hearts with a sense of, I am so loved. Why would God give this gift on top of that gift, on top of that gift, on top of that gift? We need sentences of praise to his love in our minds so that we walk around in our relationships as worshipers, ready to love, ready to share with someone else the love that we tasted this morning. This is why God forbids adultery and a lust. God doesn't forbid lust because he wants you to be miserable. Right? He forbids it because lust can never deliver the riches of his love. And he knows your joy with people will only ultimately come when you are loving like him. Lust might promise greater closeness and joy, but it delivers distance, emptiness into your life and friendships because it leaves God out. It takes away the very thing it promised to give. I can think, like I've been in counseling ministry for a really long time, and I can think of just countless people who share this with me. I mean, just this year, we've had over 20 people request counseling for pornography issues. And people just think, I, I, my heart tells me that this is going to satisfy me. Or like looking at this or being in this relationship with someone will satisfy me. And it's always empty. It always delivers distance from God and emptiness in my heart. And I still go back. It constantly takes the very thing it promises to give. But the love of Christ, on the other hand, leads to fullness of joy, peace, no more shame, no more guilt, because it leads us to Christ. God doesn't forbid lust because he wants you missing out. He forbids it because this is his universe and he wants you to enjoy the richer reality of his love and he doesn't want you to miss out on it. Do you see how this works? Our, this, this, works this changes our view of others, right? Our view of other people will never be purified until our view of God's love is present and pure. Jesus understands this. Until our vision of God's love is full, then our vision of other people will always be filled, filled with sinful intentions. So Christ is helping us understand the heart of lust and sexual sin by revealing the worship that drives the desires behind every look, every glance, every fantasy. The lie that assaults our faith before we ever turn from God to idolize another person is that God is not enough. The third idea that Christ gives to help us understand lust is the question of loss. What is God calling me to give up, right? Like Jesus says, cut off a hand, gouge out an eye. What is God calling me to give up? In counseling, we call this radical amputation, right? Cutting off a right hand or a right eye are metaphors. Don't go home and do this. 
They're metaphors to explain they, they explain they, giving up great treasures in order to enjoy our greatest treasure more. But many times we can start to put our hope in how we make changes and restructure our lives to protect ourselves from sin. So to help, well, and actually, like I, something that people get confused about in this passage too is he just talked about how the heart is what's driving lust, right? And then he's talking about like these crazy external solutions, like cutting off your hand and gouging out an eye. Like, didn't he just say it was the heart that he cared about? And now he's talking about cutting off body parts. So when we talk about radical simplification, the, it, radical amputation, it's, it's, that, those sacrifices are not what is gonna allow you to love another person, but it's about simplifying your life to enjoy the love of God so that you can love others. So I don't want you to put your hope in those things. And to help us understand what radical amputation is and isn't, I wanna share one of my favorite children's stories with you from Frog and Toad. You guys ever read Frog and Toad growing up? Okay. So in one story about Frog and Toad, Toad makes this amazing batch of cookies. And he's so overwhelmed with how good they taste that he hops straight over to Frog's place to share in their deliciousness. And as these two devour these incredibly tasty cookies, they quickly realize they can't stop eating. So just as they decide to have one last cookie, they want to eat even more. And despite their resolve to quit eating, they find themselves continuing to indulge. And Frog and Toad quickly realize if they're ever going to stop eating cookies, they'll have to do something to limit the access to them. So the rest of the story shows us all these crazy steps they take to limit their access, right, to make the cookies harder to get. Right? They try a number of things. Right? First, like, okay, let's put the cookies in a box. Right? That doesn't work because they can get in the box. So then they try, okay, we're going to put it in a box and we're going to tie the box up. That doesn't work because they can untie the box. So then they say, okay, let's put the cookies in a box and then tie it up and put it on the highest shelf. And that works for a little while. But after a little while, they remember how good those cookies taste and they go and get, they can still get to them. So our amphibious friends quickly realize that they could always undo the measures they put in place. They could still get to the cookies if they tried. So at the end of the story, they take the most radical step of all and they throw the cookies to the birds. And with no more cookies to eat, Toe decides to go home and bake a cake. Right? Now, so the story of Frog and Toad teaches a really important, critical truth in fighting temptation. Outward measures, no matter how radical they are, can never change your heart. So as we talk about fences here at the end of our, our talk tonight, it's critical to see that the fences we put up don't make our hearts pure. They simplify our lives and let us enjoy and worship the one who gave his life to make us pure. The fences we put up are not what we put our hope in, but they just create a path that lets us run more freely and with more speed and with more joy toward the one who is our, the one we love. Through the brokenness of this evil world to the one who is our hope and is our joy. Jesus uses these really serious kind of scary metaphors because there should be a cost and it should hurt the kinds of sacrifices that we remove from our lives. And what and who you are willing to part with reveals how much you truly love Christ and how much you truly hate your sin. And remember, we're doing this not to fight for some kind of state of purity where we don't sin anymore. 
We're doing these things to fight through the mountains of idols that crowd God out of our lives and hearts because we want to be close to him again. We want God back. We want to be near him. We want to enjoy his love. That's why we're serious about killing all sin, removing all stumbling blocks that stand in our way. Finally, the losses you are willing to endure for the sake of knowing and enjoying Christ, they're not only going to bring you closer to him, and not only is he worth it because of all the sacrifices he made to love you, but those sacrifices that you're willing to make are going to make you more like him. His life consisted of one sacrifice after another to make it possible for you to know him. He set aside his crown. He took up a cross to come to you. What will you set aside to pursue him? What will you sacrifice to enjoy his love so that you have that love to bring to others, even if it's just the way you think about people? You have to ask yourself if you're ready to get serious about this. Like we can pray for God to take away sin. We can beg him to take away sin. We can cry out to him to take away sin. We can wail over our sin. We can confess our sin with accuracy and sincerity. But at the end of the day, you have to start making sacrifices to run closer to Christ. Repentance is seen in a changed life. So you need to get practical. I would encourage you to make a list what are the things you can do to get nearer to the heart of God and his way of loving? So what would you say to the camper who asks you through tears, does it ever get any better? Hopefully you can say yes, but you weren't made to fight this alone and neither was I. Can I walk with you to help you understand the battle going on in your heart and in my heart so that we can grow closer to Christ? Maybe you're here this evening and you would say, uh, Pastor Tim, I know I'm a slave of sin and not a child of God. I am just completely owned by my sin. I want you to know you can be adopted this very moment through faith in Jesus Christ and his death on the cross for your sin. But maybe you're a child of God and you're battling sin. I want to just say, rem remember that the battle is good. Keep fighting. I don't know exactly what your circle of Christian friends looks like, but in our church, we want to be a community that fights together. There are people in this room that care about you. There are people in room H, right, parents that love you. People might think you're weird because maybe after tonight, you're going to start making some changes and you won't have a browser on your phone or a computer at home or the internet, can you imagine not having that? They might think you're weird because there's moments in your free time that you take to just give thanks to God for his gifts, to remember his love, to confess sin, to pray for the holiness of your brothers and sisters. But we must take our lust and the damage it does to our walk with God, the damage it does to our love for others seriously because God takes it seriously. God was serious when he sent his son Jesus to die on the cross for our lust. The poor lost sinners who are at this moment are in hell are, are serious about sin. So it's not weird to take time to cry out to your heavenly father to have light, to see lust down to its roots so that by the spirit you might know how to fight it and you might know how to joyfully return to your heavenly father 
daily so that you can then bring his love into the relationships in your life. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, I just thank you that your love is better than life. Lord, our hearts desperately want to convince us that you are not enough. That it just doesn't matter what we look at, what we think about, what we meditate on. Lord, as worshipers, you have made us for you. You have made us to worship you, to enjoy your love, and to be messengers of your love in the way we see people, think about them, love them, serve them, honor them. Lord, make us men and women who honor those around us, who honor our communities. Lord, may you redeem our sexual struggles so that all of our love would be a demonstration. All of our attention would be a demonstration of your love for us. In Christ's name I pray, amen.